So, yeah, a lot of us, I think, are worried about the state of the world. Yeah. Um, back in 2008, there was the financial crash, followed by austerity. And ever since then, a lot has changed in the world. There's been a, you know, a lot of polarisation around things like Brexit. There's been you know, real kind of distrust of politicians and a sense of divide between people and politicians. Uh, in a lot of places, there's been a growth of nationalism, like the scenes in India this week. Um, and, and that's happened in places in Europe and other places in the world as well. There's the whole kind of um, popularism. People like Trump, Bolsonaro, Modi, people like that getting elected. There's the whole post-truth thing. Um, you know, politicians just being more and more willing to play fast and loose with the truth. And the whole kind of social media um, being used to manipulate opinion and create these kind of echo chambers where, you know, just things get more and more polarised and more and more extreme. And then there's climate change, you know, the, the, the real possibility of climate change and what that will mean for many people across the world, particularly people living in poorer places in the world, yeah? So there can be a real sense of, of, of worry, even despair, uh, even powerlessness and frustration, yeah? And maybe when, if we feel like that, I think it's also good to remember that it's not all negative. Actually, that it's good just to sort of deliberately bring to mind positive things as well. Yeah. So although there are, you know, reasons to be worried, reasons to be concerned, if you think of, you know, our lifetimes, there's been a lot of very positive changes as well. Yeah. So, for example, uh, if you're gay or lesbian, things are much better today than they were 30, 40, 50 years ago. Yeah. In the 1970s, so in, you know, in my lifetime, in, in most people's lifetime here, um, psychiatrists defined being gay or lesbian as a, as a mental illness. Yeah. It's not that long ago. Yeah. And now we have gay marriage. Yeah. So that, that's a really positive change, isn't it? There's something that's really changed for the better. Yeah. It's just good to kind of note that and remember that. Um, I think uh, in terms of people's attitudes towards disabilities, there's probably been a, a, a big shift in a positive direction. Yeah. And more worldwide, apparently <coughs> there are certain diseases which are, are now close to being eradicated. Uh, apparently people, less people die in warfare than they did 100 years ago or more than 100 years ago. Less people are dying of malnutrition and starvation. There are still big problems. There can be famines and droughts and so on, but there tends to be a better response and less people are kind of suffering from those things than they were once upon a time. So, yeah, that, that, there have been struggles and there have been gains as, as a result of those struggles. And it's just good to kind of remember that and have that in our picture as well. Nevertheless, there is, I think, in recent years, a sense of... Um, you know, that the world sort of could be on, on the brink of a kind of darker time, that something is sort of changing. So there's a kind of post-war liberal consensus which is under threat and, you know, that, that, that a lot of things that have been struggled for could be lost or, or um, uh, yeah, that, that, that there's just more and more kind of polarisation and uh, division between people. More and more people just alienated from society or from politics and so on. More and more people struggling, you know, just their wages are stagnant and they feel left out in some kind of way. So, yeah, like a lot of people, I guess, I've just been thinking about that. I've just been watching that go, going on, sometimes with a sense of, like, what, what's, what's the world coming to? What's going on? And just trying to sort of get my head around it and understand it. And I suppose as a Buddhist, I've been trying to think about how do I respond to that or what do I think about that as a Buddhist? What has Buddhism got to say about that? Yeah. Surely if, we're, if we as Buddhists want Buddhism to play a role in society, if we want Buddhism to kind of come into the West, we need to be able to speak about these issues. We need to be able to say what, what does Buddhism offer in terms of thinking about these world problems? What kind of society is Buddhism 
in favour of, yeah? Uh, surely, you know, what, what has the Dharma got to say? What insights, what principles, what kind of moral values has Buddhism got to offer? So, yeah, I've just been sort of starting to sort of think about that and explore that in my own reading and my own study. Um, I'm, I'm sort of trying to give myself a bit of a political education. I realise I'm quite politically naive, I think, to be honest, and um, I'm just trying to sort of be more informed and better informed because I really want to kind of think through what's Buddhism got to say, yeah? There are a lot of Buddhists doing this, you know, so there are a lot of people in what's called engaged Buddhism. But I have to confess, I've, I've never come across a writer or anyone yet that I've been fully satisfied with. A lot of uh, engaged Buddhists, it feels to me like they've got their political views, which they already had before they were a Buddhist, mm-hmm. and they've just applied a bit of Buddhist jargon to it. Yeah, um, Maybe that's a bit unfair, but I, I haven't come across anyone where I've thought, oh yeah, they're really getting down to what Buddhism has got to say about social and political issues. Yeah, And maybe we shouldn't be too surprised about that. Buddhism is very, very new in this culture. It's very, very new. We're very, very small, and we're still finding our voice. You know, we're just sort of trying to establish ourselves. We're just trying to sort of teach Buddhism. We're very much still finding our voice, and and it's very much kind of work in progress, kind of thinking these through and trying to work out what what do the kind of moral values and insights of Buddhism, how do they speak to life and society in the twenty first century? So I mean, you know, it's it's very much work in progress, and and. Maybe my talk this morning is a kind of little modest contribution to that. Me just trying to sort of play a part in that some kind of in some kind of way. So I'm going to talk about equality, and my talk is inspired by a book called The Spirit Level. Yeah. So back in 2009, there was a book called The Spirit Level published by Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett, and then ten years later they published this book which is called The Inner Level. Yeah, I'll say more about this one later on. So the first book, yeah, came out in 2009, so that's just after the financial crash, just as, you know, we were going into the decade of austerity. And it's a study of inequality, yeah. And basically, since the 1930s till about the 1980s or 70s, um, so many, many societies, you know, Europe, America, the kind of wealthy industrial societies, they, they became more equal from the 30s to the 70s. There was a growth in equality. And, um, you know, from very unequal societies in the 19th century, there was a kind of redistribution of income and growing equality. And then since the 1980s, that's completely changed again. The, the trend has completely reversed and there's now inequality at levels, you know, going back to the 1930s and beyond. Yeah. So apparently now there are CEOs of some companies who are paid 400 times more than the lowest paid members of their staff. Yeah. So that, would, that just wouldn't have been the case 50 years ago, say. Uh, but now, yeah, 300, 400 times pay differentials is not unusual. It does vary, though, from different country to country. So they look in the book how there is a a variation. So some societies, America, uh, followed by the United Kingdom, there's more inequality. There's a kind of bigger gap. And some societies, like Japan or Sweden, say, for example, they're much more equal. Yeah. So uh, Sweden, it's because they have high taxes and high social spending. Um, and Japan, it's not that. Japan isn't apparently a high-tax country. They just have this culture where you work for a company, you sort of belong to the company, and they, they, they don't have big pay differentials. Everyone is paid much more kind of similar rates. Yeah, that's just kind of in the culture. Yeah. So the basic picture is, yeah, massive growth of inequality in the last 40 years but with these national differences, quite big differences between different countries, different societies. Then they go on to look at how, with many 
social problems, many social issues, it's related to inequality. Yeah. So there are a lot of things like certain health problems, certain health issues, uh, crime, so either being a victim of crime or getting involved in crime, uh, certain kinds of addiction and drug use, educational attainment, uh, mental illness, and, and many, many more problems. It's, it affects those down the bottom of the scale more than it does those at the top end of the scale. Yeah, that makes sense. So if, if you're kind of poorer or lower class, you're more likely to do badly in those things, health-wise, mental health, education, crime, and so on. Yeah. So maybe you think, well, that's not surprising. It's obvious that poverty would cause certain problems. But we have to be a bit careful, because just because there's a correlation doesn't mean it's a kind of causal relationship, if you see what I mean. Yeah. It could also be that, say somebody's health gets bad, then, then they can't work and they, and they move down the social scale, if you see what I mean. So it, it could be that poverty and low class causes certain problems, or it could be that those problems cause somebody to become low class, if you see what I mean. Yeah. However, there's something else they notice and they've done lots and lots of research and drawn on lots and lots of worldwide research, there's something else they notice which is rather surprising. What they notice is, and I've done it, graph. So here you've got your level of social problem, and here you've got income or status, yeah? What they notice is in societies where there's more equality, so a bigger, a, a, a smaller gap between rich and poor, you still get this gradient. Uh, it is still kind of tougher for those at the bottom, as it were. But it's not so bad as in the high inequality countries. Yeah? So in societies where there's more inequality, A, the gradient is steeper, there's more kind of difference, and actually, the, the problems are there more. Yeah, it's worse for everybody. Do you see what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah. So they notice this over many, many issues, and they've studied lots of societies, and they've also done studies comparing the different states of the United States of America. And it's an incredibly consistent picture that emerges: that inequality makes things worse for everybody. Very, very interesting. So that shows it can't be the social sorting thing. It can't be that... Um, it, it shows that, that inequality is somehow kind of causing these problems and exacerbating them and making them worse. Yeah. So, for example, America, one of the wealthiest countries in the world, but also one of the most unequal in terms of the wealthy countries, uh, it has the highest murder rates in the world. In, in, in wealthy countries. It has the highest percentage of people in prison. It has the highest rates of mental illness. It has the highest teenage birth rates. It has very low life expectancy for a wealthy country. And it has low child well-being and low child educational attainments. Quite shocking picture of how inequality damages everybody. Yeah? Uh, this is the kind of picture they're painting. So then they go into, well, why is this? What's going on? And in a way, that's where the, the, the second book, The Inner Level, comes in. They're kind of exploring the psychology of inequality. And basically, I'm, I'm sort of um, you know, trying to give a kind of simple summary of quite a complicated argument. But the gist of it is that it's to do with status anxiety. Yeah? That where there's more inequality, there's more status, uh, there's more at stake in terms of status. And that creates anxiety for everybody. If you're at the bottom, it creates a lot of anxiety. But even if you're a bit further up, you're still kind of worried about your position. And there's a kind of anxiety which causes stress, which then can lead through to various problems. You know, addiction, health problems, and so on. Yeah, so that's, that's the basic theory, that where there's more inequality, there's more differential, status becomes heightened 
and that creates more stress and that leads through to various problems. So human beings, we are social creatures. You know, sometimes we compete with each other, sometimes we cooperate with each other, and both of those involve uh, comparing ourselves to others. Just kind of, oh, you know, am I, how good am I compared to them? Yeah, we get a sense of ourselves, a sense of our identity, a sense of who we are, hugely through comparing ourselves to others. Yeah, um, and that's, you know, that may be very, very healthy. It's just part of being human. It can be quite healthy. I suppose what they're saying is, in certain kinds of society where there's these big kind of differentials, that process of how we get our identity through comparing ourselves to others is distorted and heightened. In, in a kind of unhealthy kind of way. So if I imagine my grandparents, they were born in um, the East End of London, uh, you know, working class, and, you know, they, they would have been born as working class, and that, that was just who they were, you know. It was, they were just born into that. It didn't sort of reflect on them personally. It was just kind of the circumstances they were born into. Um, you know, it's just birth or luck. It's just, it doesn't say anything about you as a person so much, yeah? And maybe there was the royal family, you know, way beyond, you know, and they probably maybe looked up to the royal family with a sense of respect and deference. But they would have never dreamt of becoming like that. That was just another world. Do you know what I mean? Yeah? So in a traditional society, maybe that's how you experience yourself, yeah? But then you get different kinds of society where there's a perception of mobility, social mobility. Yeah, there's a kind of hope or even expectation to achieve something. Yeah, there's a kind of message somehow that you can be anything you want to be. You can be what you want to be. Yeah, and again, it's not that that's an entirely bad message, but it creates anxiety. Yeah, because now where you are in the social scale says something about you. It says something about your self-worth. Yeah, If you've made it, it says something about you. But that also implies, well, if you haven't made it, you know, in the, in the eyes of society, that also says something about you, that you're a failure, that you're, you, you, you're not really kind of worthwhile, as it were. Yeah. So in certain kinds of society, with certain kind of value system, the whole process whereby we form a sense of self-worth, self-esteem is kind of skewed and heightened and uh, there's much kind of stronger sense of you're either a success or you're a failure, yeah? And that causes stress and it affects everybody, yeah? So, yeah, so one of the things they go into in the book is studies of self-esteem, yeah? So they draw on lots of research and lots of the research is from America because it's a big country with lots of research going on so apparently there are these studies of uh, they've studied self-esteem in children yeah so in the 1950s they surveyed or interviewed children and apparently about 12 percent of them on average would agree with the statement i'm a very important person yeah 12 percent would say yes i'm a very important person by the 1980s that had grown to 80 percent yeah 80 percent I'm a very important person, yeah? So there's this, yes, there are lots of studies, again, noticing this, yeah? People sort of assessing themselves in a different kind of way or kind of presenting themselves in a different kind of way, yeah? So what's going on there, yeah? Is that that they've just got more self-esteem in a healthy kind of way or is there something a bit artificial about it, a bit kind of um, pressured, a bit kind of uh, pumped up? about it, yeah? And, yeah, their, their argument is that, yes, we're now in a society where there's more pressure to be someone, yeah? You've got to be special. Uh, there's more pressure to be cool, to wear the right brands, to consume the right electrical goods, and so on, yeah? You've got to kind of be someone. And the pressure, in a way, is strongest on those lower down the social scale, Yeah? Because, they, because they're lower down the social scale, in a sense they've got more to lose and more to prove. Yeah? 
So there's a kind of particular kind of anxiety and stress and distress uh, for, for those people to kind of, yeah, try and kind of generate a sense of self-worth and uh, self-esteem, yeah? And, so, and then maybe more pressure to project a slightly artificial sense of status and importance, yeah? And this leads to stress. It leads to anxiety. And, um, you know, we have seen in recent decades massive increase in certain psychological problems, yeah? So they reckon now that apparently uh, one in five teenage children in the UK self-harm at some point. That's a shocking statistic, isn't it? One in five at some point. Might, might only be once, but, um, uh, you know, and that's to do with anxiety and, and sense of control over one's life, yeah? Um, there's a, a huge rise, rise in eating disorders, yeah? Initially, it was, it was girls... And women, but now it's men as well. Apparently, uh, there's there's, a, there's a, a whole new problem of men having eating disorders, which again is to do with self-image and uh, your sense of yourself and uh, compa- compared to others. Yeah. Apparently, mental illness levels, things like depression levels, they're three times worse in more unequal societies than some other societies. Yeah. So you're not talking just a slight difference; it's massive differences. Uh, in these problems, I remember once a few years ago, I was in a in a shopping queue. It was Christmas time, so I was doing my Christmas shopping. I was in the queue at the till, and I got chatting to the woman in front of me, and uh, she was just really stressed. Stressed, and she started saying, oh, "I've got all this stuff to do, and I've got all this stuff to buy, and my family expects me to do this." and And it was one of those moments where the kind of the veneer came off. <laughs> And you saw what was really going on, yeah? Because other people started joining in the conversation. And very quickly, there was a whole group of us. <laughs> just saying, oh, God, it's awful, isn't it? We feel so pressed, you know. And um, it, was, it was, you know, in a way, it was sort of just a kind of trivial moment and just a bit of stress. But in another, in another way, she really was stressed. She really was stressed. And so were some of the others. And she... And she sort of knew it was crazy, but she felt she had to do it. Do you know what I mean? I think a lot of people know that. They, they're in these kind of busy, speedy lives all the time. They feel they've got so much to do. And on some level, they know it's a bit bonkers, but there's just a kind of weight of expectation. And they feel kind of trapped in it, and they're just sort of racing to keep up and keep up. Yeah? So maybe for a lot of people, that stress, they can just shrug it off and it's fine. But I think for some it has more serious effect. It maybe means they start smoking. It maybe means they start drinking more. It maybe means they, they eat, they comfort eat. Or they're just buying things, getting into debt. Uh, do you know what I mean? It's, you know, for some it has a kind of knock-on effect, which then leads to various problems. Yeah? That's basically the kind of picture they put forward. So just to summarise so far, yeah, in societies where there's... So this is talking about the wealthy societies in the world, not obviously not uh, all societies, yeah, but in, in the kind of wealthy um, industrialised societies, as it were, there are various problems which are worse the more inequality there is, and they're worse across the scale. They're worse for everyone. And they're relating this to, yeah, to, to status. Yeah? That if you live in a society where you know, who you are is kind of measured by what you wear, what you own, how much you earn and all that kind of stuff, that creates a kind of pressure to be someone. Yeah? Uh, more and more people are, are, are pressured to kind of judge their own self-worth by those external things rather than something internal to them. Yeah? So it creates more stress for everybody, where, wherever you are in the scale, as it were. And yes, it creates this kind of more driven, more pumped up, more addictive, more consumerist kind of society, where there's less happiness, uh, less contentment, more psychological stress and illness. 
So in other words, they're talking about how the values of a society affect us. They get under our skin. Yeah? They affect how we view ourselves, how we, how we form an identity and a sense of self-worth. Yeah? And then they get in, under our skin in terms of how we compare ourselves to others, how we view others, how we relate to others as well. Yeah? Uh, it has a kind of subtle but insidious effect, maybe on all of us. Yeah? Perhaps maybe some people that are struggling more than others because they, they feel they've got no alternative, but maybe on all of us we're, we're kind of conditioned and affected by the values of our society in this kind of way. And because we're in it, you know, this is a society we're in, we, it's very hard to see any sort of alternative. It's very hard to imagine that it actually doesn't have to be like that. Yeah? Uh, we're kind of just caught up uh, in it and, um, yeah, just yeah, can't see anything different. So, yes, I, I found this book really, really fascinating uh, very, very striking and convincing, and um, it just seemed to explain so many things. Their, 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 their basic theory, their basic ideas seem to have a very strong explanatory power for me. I did have, I've got various questions about it, which I'd actually love to go into, but I haven't got time. Yeah? But overall, I was, yeah, I was very, very struck by the book and what it was saying. So I just want to go to explore one thing or one question in more detail for the rest of my talk. So at a certain point in the in this book, the inner level, they quite early on they say it's not a self this is not a self-help book. This is not a self-help book. Yeah. <coughs> so they don't quite explicitly state it, but what I felt they were doing was they were sort of um, putting two things in opposition, yeah. So the sort of self-help, so you're in this society and you just do various things to try and develop a bit of self-esteem, to try and have a thick skin so you're not affected by what's going on in the world around you. Self-help. And they're sort of, in a way, implicitly contrasting that with social change. Yeah? So you can either look after yourself or you can work for social change. You can work to sort of change the structures which create inequality. Yeah? So it's either self-help or social change. And this reminded me of a few years back, there was a, um, a sort of cultural critic, cultural commentator, writer called Slavoj Zizek uh, from Eastern Europe. I think he's a Marxist, certainly very left-wing. And he wrote an article in which he described Buddhism, particularly Western Buddhism. He said, Western Buddhism is the perfect ideological supplement to modern capitalism. Yeah. Western Buddhism is the perfect ideological supplement to modern capitalism. So what he meant by that was, uh, in the modern world, in modern capitalism, people have, have to work very long hours, there's a lot of pressure on them, they're overloaded with information and stimulation, and what Buddhism is, is a way that some people just sort of escape from that. They meditate, they just go into their minds and they just say, oh, it's all just thoughts, yeah? And it provides a kind of escape, yeah? So rather, so it provides them a way with coping with things that they shouldn't actually have to cope with, yeah? Or it provides them a way of, yeah, dealing with things. Rather than coping it, they should be challenging it. And he's saying, well, you know, Buddhism is, is about that kind of escape. And mindfulness as well. Mindfulness gets critiqued in that way, that it's just helping people cope with conditions that they shouldn't actually be in in the first place. Yeah. So that was his critique. So I sort of want to explore that. Is that true? Is that really all that Buddhism is offering? Yeah. Is it really a choice between those two things, between self-help and social change? And of course what I'm going to argue is that no, you need to do both. You need to do both. You need to transform yourself and you need to try and help to transform the world. Yeah? And actually the two of them are related to each other. So yeah, I think we do have to start by transforming ourselves. In a way, that is where Buddhism starts from. If you want to be any help in the world, if you want to be a force for good, you know, with people around you, let alone wider society, well, you need to be aware. 
you need to be kind, you need to be ethical, you need to have courage, uh, you need to be able to know what you think about things and be based in certain values, as it were. Yeah. I did years ago move in political circles and, you know, it's not true of everyone, but a lot of activists, they're just angry and um, frustrated and... Uh, uh, I think, that, you know, well, you see it, don't you? If you just look on a, a blog, you just see these angry, polarised voices not listening to each other. It's just part of the problem. It's not part of the solution, Yeah. So if you want to be a force for good in the world, you do have to start with yourself and to, to, to try and develop qualities of awareness and compassion and courage and truthfulness and so on. Yeah. So, yeah, it's not just self-help, it's transforming self uh, on, a, on a kind of deeper level so that you can really kind of help in the world, maybe a bit. Yeah. But we also, yes, we need to transform world. Yeah. Uh, some people, they're in such difficult conditions that the idea of transforming self, it, you know, it's just really problematic. It's really difficult. They're really kind of struggling. So there is a need to provide kind of basic uh, conditions where people can actually be themselves and discover themselves, as it were. Yeah? And transforming self, you know, having a common project where you're working for the, you know, some kind of common good, as it were, when in a way that can really give people dignity. It can give people a sense of meaning. It can give people a sense of community and solidarity that you're, you're working for a common purpose together. And that transforms self. That creates a stronger sense of identity, a stronger sense of self-worth and self-esteem, as it were. Yeah? So you need both transforming self and transforming world. And in a way, you can't have one without the other. They're kind of uh, related to each other. Yeah? But it does start, in a way, with transforming self, yeah? That's the basis for deeper social change. You can't really work for change if actually you're still immersed in the values of the world, as it were, yeah? So the last time there were riots in this country was 2011. Uh, there were riots on the streets of South London. And... Uh, but they weren't political riots. Yeah? People were smashing shop windows and they were dis- stealing designer label clothes, stealing electrical goods. Yeah? So in a way it was a rebellion. You know, there were young people, in a way, kind of lost in society, kind of getting angry and doing something. But actually what they did was completely conforming to the values of the world. You know, they were just... They were just sort of trying to kind of play the same game in a certain kind of way. It wasn't actually based on different values. It wasn't actually based, you know, it wasn't at all kind of radical or different, really. They were just caught up in their own particular way in the status anxiety and the status competition. There's a very famous figure in India, Dr. Ambedkar. Some of you will know the story of Dr. Ambedkar. I haven't got time to tell his story. It's an extraordinary story. Uh, he's, Ambedkar is one of the greatest liberation fighters of the 20th century. I think in, in the future he will be a world-famous figure. So he fought for the, the, the so-called untouchables in India. He was actually born an untouchable, and all his life he fought for them and their rights. Uh, he somehow managed to get an education, became a lawyer. It's an extraordinary story what he achieved. And when India became independent from Britain, uh, the British Empire, he, he was the best qualified lawyer in the country. So he became the law minister and framed the new constitution of India. And because he did that, he was able to write into that certain rights for the, for the so-called untouchable people. Yeah, who are, are really at the bottom of the pile in Indian society and, and treated in the most appalling way. Yeah? So he worked all his life for their political emancipation and achieved a great deal. Yeah? But it's interesting what happened next was he, he then realised the limits of political change. He, he, he started work for, working for further change but came up against all sorts of opposition. And eventually he resigned his position 
and he realised that political change wasn't going to get, get any further because he realised that caste, you know, the, 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 the prejudice, the attitudes, that wasn't really in law. It wasn't really out there. It was in here. It was in people's minds. It was in people's hearts. And he realised that if, if it was going to be real change, real deeper change, that's what needed to change, was, was the attitudes the kind of what goes on in the mind and the heart. So he resigned his political position and he actually converted to Buddhism. Uh, he converted to Buddhism as a way of repudiating the caste system and you know, eventually millions of his followers followed him and converted to Buddhism as a way of getting dignity and as a way of um, sort of changing their identity and saying, no, we're not untouchable anymore, we're Buddhist. Yeah? It was an incredible kind of social movement and there's now lots of research to show that those people who converted have done very well in terms of education, in terms of their lives. It was, it was really, really kind of liberating for them. Yeah? But yes, for real deep change, for real profound change, there has to be the transformation of self. There has to be the transformation of, kind of the values, the attitudes of what goes on in the mind and the heart. So what I want to do now is I want to bring in a Buddhist teaching here just to explore a bit more this idea of transforming self and transforming world. So it's a teaching that some of you all know. It's a teaching that's very dear to me, actually. I've actually written a book about this and because um, I love this teaching. It's such a fantastic teaching. I'm not promoting the book. <laughs> Sorry, I just slipped out. Um, it's a wonderful teaching uh, of the world he wins, yeah? So, taught by the Buddha two and a half thousand years ago, known in tradition as the Loka Dhammas. Loka is world, Dhammas is something like conditions. So it's the conditions of the world. We tend to translate it poetically as the world he wins, yeah? So these are the kind of conditions in the world which just blow around, yeah? As we go through our life, Sometimes we get what we want, sometimes we lose what we want. Yeah? Sometimes people appreciate what we're doing and praise us, sometimes they criticise and blame. Sometimes life is sweet and pleasurable, sometimes there's pain and suffering. Yeah? Sometimes we're popular and people notice us and we're well liked. Sometimes we feel nobody notices me or, or we're, we're unpopular or something we do is, is, is not approved of or something like that. So this, these are the worldly wins. And the Buddha said, you can't escape from these. Yeah? They're just, however you live your life, you're going to experience all of these at some point. Yeah? Whatever kind of society you live in, you're going to experience all of these at some point. They're everywhere. Yeah? They're just the kind of changing conditions of life which are everywhere. Yeah? They can't be avoided but we can learn to respond to them more skillfully so we're not kind of so blown around by them. Yeah? Because that's what happens sometimes. Yeah? Sometimes they really blow us around. Yeah? The wind blows this way and we think, oh yeah, life's all right and I'm all right and uh, there's a sense of kind of being buoyed up and feeling confident and all's well with life. And then the, the winds blow this way and we're kind of blown into a spin we lose confidence, we feel dejected, we feel life's not fair, and so on. You know, you know the kind of thing, just being kind of blown around by the changing conditions of life. Yeah? And I suppose what's happening is, if, if we're blown around, is we're sort of basing our happiness on something that's just kind of worldly. We're basing our happiness, or we're staking our happiness on something that's worldly and contingent it just depends on conditions and that's kind of fickle that's going to change yeah it's in that, you know however we live our life some some people are going to like what we do and some people aren't you know it's just kind of part of life you can't please everybody all the time yeah so if we stake our happiness on that we're sort of staking our happiness on something impossible something kind of fickle something that's uh, changing and fluid and Sooner or later, we're going to be disappointed. Yeah. That's what the Buddha said. So if we notice ourselves being blown around, that's what's going on. We're kind of invested 
uh, in some kind of way. Yeah? And yeah, that eventually leads to stress, to disappointment, and to suffering. Yeah? Even, you know, even when it is this way, deep down there's a sense of anxiety because it might change. Yeah? And we've got, we, we're, we're kind of more desperate to kind of keep things on this side of the scale. Yeah? You see that with celebrities, don't you? They're famous. And they, they get more and more desperate to stay famous. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just like it's a kind of desperate game that they're in. Yeah? So the Buddha was saying, well, look, don't live your life on those values. Look to the deeper values. Yeah? So, you know, rather than gain and loss, rather than that's what matters to us, can we just try and practice generosity? Can we just try and live from a sense of generosity? Yeah? That we're just trying to kind of give... Yeah, we're trying to live from what can I give rather than what can I get. Yeah, rather than play, pray, living according to the values of praise and blame, can we just practice truthfulness? Yeah. So if we get criticised, well, what, was there anything truthful in that? Is there anything I can learn from that? Yeah. If we need to give criticism, just trying to do it truthfully and helpfully, rather than as a kind of vent for our frustration. Yeah? If we receive praise, the same. Just just accept that and think, you know, what's true and helpful about that. Yeah? So truthfulness. Uh, contentment. Yeah, the value of contentment rather than blown around by pleasure and pain. And a sense of integrity. Yeah? So rather than our, our sense of self-worth coming from what others think of us, Really trying to practice integrity. I mean, of course, this is a big, big thing. I'm not saying this is easy. But, yeah, just trying to have integrity. What do I think? What do I feel? And trying to live by that, rather than measuring ourselves by what other people uh, think about us, as it were. So that was the Buddha's um, teaching of the worldly winds. Yeah? And I suppose what you could say is, in a way what I've been exploring earlier is that in some societies, these winds blow more strongly. Yeah? I mean, they're there, in, they're always going to be there. Yeah? But I think in certain societies, they maybe blow more strongly. In the sense that the society is more based on those values. And there's less sense of any alternative, if that makes sense. Yeah? So people are just more liable to get caught up in them, yeah? And, you know, in a way, what those writers are arguing is that where there's more inequality, there's more status anxiety, in a way, all this, these kind of things become more important, yeah? So you get more of a culture of consumerism, the game of game and loss, yeah? You get more of a culture of fame and celebrity, the game of fame and infamy, yeah? You get more of a culture of Social media and praise and blame and uh, like you know who, who's liking me, who's noticing, and so on. In certain kind of cultures or societies, all this is sort of heightened. It's all kind of blown up, as it were. Uh, it becomes more important, and there's less sense of being able to live an alternative kind of life. Yeah? And the Buddha just says, "Well, that's just a delusion. It's just going to create suffering, and it's going to create suffering for everybody, even the winds." Because they're still suffering the stress of possibly losing what they've got. Yeah? And yeah, the solution is to live from those deeper values or to gradually learn to live from those deeper values. So yeah, that's the Buddha's teaching of the worldly winds. And in a way, I'm saying that, to me, that's both a teaching about transforming self and it's a teaching about transforming world. Yeah? Um, it's partly a transforming self teaching, yeah? If we know this teaching, we can learn to recognise the worldly winds. We can maybe see, oh, I'm being blown around by that. We start to kind of understand how we're kind of invested and identified with certain things. We can maybe let go, practice bringing in other kind of values, and we can develop more equanimity. We can be more... have more of an even keel, Yeah? And that's, you know, that's kind of freeing for us. And I suppose if we're like that as well, we're, we're more able to help others. We're more able to kind of be there for others, yeah? So this is partly a, a transforming self kind of teaching. But it's also a transforming world 
teaching. Yeah? It's showing how the values of the world affect us and condition us and blow us around. Yeah? It's saying that if you have a society that's based on those values, what you end up with is a sense of uh, yeah, feeling separate, more kind of competing and jostling for attention, uh, more effort going into kind of promoting yourself. Do you know what I mean? It has a kind of social effect. It kind of affects how we see ourselves and how we relate to others. Yeah. So yeah, it's showing how the values in society affect all of us. Yeah. Affect um, our own self view and our view of others and the way we relate to others. And yeah, if we can live from kind of deeper values, truer values, it changes us, it frees us, but it also changes society. It also changes the culture around us. Yeah. So I'm just going to conclude now. Um, just sort of one more point to make, really. So, yeah, for, so for me, the job of Buddhism, the job of, um, you know, maybe other spiritual teachings as well, is to provide that deeper vision, is to kind of uphold an ethical view to uphold ethics and values that make possible a more decent human life and a more decent society. That's the job of Buddhism and uh, that's the job of spiritual traditions. Yeah? To do that, to provide that ethical vision and those values that a decent human life and a decent society can be based upon. And also to help create context, social contexts where people can live by those values, where it can actually become real, a real lived experience for people. That's the job. That's the job of the Croydon Buddhist Centre. That's actually why we're here. Yeah? That's what this place is supposed to be about. Yeah? And in a way, when I, I feel a bit self-conscious standing here and saying that, because I, I, part, you know, there's a little voice of doubt just saying, that's so naive. <laughs> that's so crazy. Because yeah? I'm aware we're so small. We're such a small little community. Uh, you know, and I'm aware, you know, we're just human like everyone else. You know, I've got all my kind of hang-ups and problems. and So in a way, it can feel a bit kind of naive and a bit kind of crazy. We're so small. We're such a fragile little community just kind of getting going, really. Um. And, yeah, we only reach a certain part of society at the moment. Just have to acknowledge that, yeah? Um, apparently this week, another 16-year-old lad was stabbed to death in Croydon. Another one. There's been already a few this year, yeah? So there's a whole culture of uh, gangs and gang violence going on in South London. And it's, all, it's to do with status. It's exactly to do with this. It's exactly to do with young guys. They're probably a bit lost in life. Maybe some of them haven't got many prospects. So they have to kind of pump themselves up. They, they're kind of... Um, their view of themselves is, is almost totally dependent on, on, on how others see them. Yeah? And so they're drawn into this kind of culture of gangs. And for some of them, it, it means they're drawn into crime and, and violence and... Oh, yeah, this week it's ended in a complete tragedy for some family somewhere in Croydon. Yeah. And, of course, I'm aware that those young guys are very unlikely to come into the Croydon Buddhist Centre. Yeah. Probably feels like they've never come in here in a million years. Yeah. Um, so, you know, have we really got anything to offer? Could we really kind of reach people like that? Well, I suppose my hope, my dream is that one day we could. Because actually we have lots of school visits here. We're always meeting groups of school visits here. I suppose my hope is my dream that one day I'm doing a school visit here and I've got the courage and the clarity and the wherewithal to say the right thing. And maybe it could just kind of be the right thing for a certain person to hear which could change their life. Yeah, And maybe they then are in position to 
change others' lives around them. Yeah? I think that's what we've got to aspire to, even if it feels a bit crazy and a bit naive. Yeah? Or maybe a teacher will come in. Yeah? And they're out there in the world, maybe working in quite difficult conditions, but they hear something here which supports them and helps them stay true to their values, stay true to their ethics, and to be a force for good in the world. Yeah? I think that's a lot what we do here. I think often we're helping the people that help people. And that's obviously a very valuable thing to do. We're supporting the spiritual life of a lot of people who are, doing, who are trying to do a good thing out there in the world. Yeah? So yes, that's the vision. That's the challenge. Um, and we're a small community, but we're growing. We're putting down roots. And I think we're gradually, we are going to reach more people. We're going to reach a kind of broader base of people. I think if we really try to do that, we can do that. And I think we're just in the process of learning to speak people's language, learning to address their concerns, learning to relate the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, to the things that are actually going on in people's lives. That's the challenge, to do that in a kind of imaginative, helpful kind of way. Yeah. So we're very new. We're still finding our voice. At the same time, yeah, we're, we're already making a contribution to a lot of people's lives. And, uh, but there's just so much more, so, so much more that we could be doing. Yeah? So that's our job. Our job is to offer an alternative. An alternative way of living your life and an alternative kind of society. Yeah? Uh, and we're offering three things. Yeah? So we're offering different values, different ethics. Yeah? We're offering a kind of idea of what a decent human life, fulfilling human life, really looks like, yeah? And the kind of moral insights and principles and values that that life would be based on, yeah? So that's the Buddha jewel. That's the ideal of enlightenment, human enlightenment. And fine ideas aren't enough. Then people need practices. They need tools. They need methods to be able to kind of live that out in their own life, yeah? to be able to practice it and develop it and change themselves. So that's the Dharma Dharma jewel, the practices and the teachings. And the third thing, the third crucial thing is um, to recognise that it's impossible for people to do that on their own. None of us could do that on our own. Let's be realistic about it. We need help. We need to support each other. We need friendship. Yeah? Uh, when the world, you know, if you're out there and the world is pumping a different message at you, it's very, very hard to stand against that. Yeah? You need a context where there's friendship and support and where you're appreciated for who you are and encouraged to be who you really are and helped to kind of flourish and um, develop you know, your real qualities, as it were. Yeah? So that's the Sangaju, the ideal of a spiritual community. Yeah? So that's what the world really needs. And that's the challenge for us, is to try and provide that and uh, you know, try and do that for the world to the best of our ability. I'll stop there. Thanks very much. Mm-hmm.